online. I think the, the printer um, gave up. Uh, so you have a blank outline inside, uh, but that's okay. Uh, the the uh, title is The Last Passover, um, and it's Matthew 26, verse 17 to 29. Uh, and there are only three points. The first point is, should we just have a, okay, the first point is the Passover prepared, uh, and that's verses um, 17 to 19. The second point will be the betrayer confronted, verse 20 to 25, and then the Passover transformed, verse 26 to 29. Okay, apologies for that. The Passover prepared, the betrayer confronted, and the Passover transformed. Matthew 26, verses 17 to 29. Now, is the mic loud enough? Can you all hear me? Okay, let me leave this in prayer then. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we pray now that as we uh, hear this word and we uh, uh, listen to Jesus, your spirit will be opening our hearts uh, to love him, to follow him, to obey him, and to persevere uh, in doing so. We ask this in his name. Amen. The countdown has begun. Jesus is going to die. In chapter 26, verse 1, which we looked at last week, it was two days to his death. And now the two days have become one. What would you do if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow? Uh, chances are you want to be with your family, wouldn't you? Jesus spends the evening with his friends. In fact, he eats the Passover meal with them, something that people typically did in families. Interesting. Though we've already heard earlier on in Matthew that he considers his followers his family. And we see that reflected in his choices here. Before I look at it, let me remind you a little bit about the Passover. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt 1,500 years beforehand, he sent ten plagues, one by one by one, upon the Egyptians. After nine plagues, Pharaoh was still stubborn, would not let the people go, and so God threatened plague number ten, the plague that was going to be the clincher. Every firstborn son in the family, in every family in Egypt, would be killed. But God told the people of Israel to slaughter a lamb. Or to share one with their neighbors. Before they roasted or ate the lamb, they were to take some blood and to put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they stayed. And when the Lord came to bring judgment upon Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorposts and pass over the homes where his people lived. And that's exactly what happened. God's judgment fell on the Egyptians. And in the midst of that judgment, he rescued his people. The only death in their homes was the death of a lamb. A lamb died instead of a person when God came in judgment to rescue his people. But unless they believed God and did what he said, unless they trusted him enough to sacrifice a lamb and shelter un under his blood, 
then they would have the same fate as the Egyptians when God came in judgment. Now, God told the people of Israel to remember this event with a meal every year. And this meal was called the Passover. He told them to slaughter and eat a lamb. And as they did that, they would remember that God had saved his people from slavery in Egypt through an act of judgment. And they would remember that as judgment fell upon God's enemies, God's people were saved because of the blood, the substitutionary death of a lamb. They would not be repeating the redemption of the, the Exodus every year. They would be celebrating that one completed act of redemption that God had accomplished on their behalf. That night, God, the Pharaoh told Moses and Aaron, that's enough, all these people kill. Take your possessions and go. In fact, the Egyptians gave lots of loot to them and the Israelites left Egypt and they left in such a hurry that they didn't have time to make bread with yeast that will rise. They baked a supply of bread without yeast, unleavened bread. And so God commanded they remember this each year by eating unleavened bread for a whole week every year at Passover time. Jesus was going to eat this Passover meal with his disciples. He was probably eating it a day early actually because he was going to be dead by the proper time. And they were asking, now they knew he wanted to eat with them. They're saying, where are we going to do it? And uh, he gives them this instruction, verse 18. He said, of verse 17, they say, where are you going to do it? Verse 18, he says, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, we're not sure whether Jesus made a prior arrangement with this man or he's doing something miraculous here. But either way, he's, he's giving the order. Either way, he's in control of the situation. Remember Judas, in verse 16, he's looking for an opportunity to betray him. Jesus, in verse 18, knows my time is at hand. He's in control. And when Jesus speaks, the proper response is obedience. And so that's what the disciples do. In verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And the scene now shifts to the meal they had together that night. Verse 20 indicates that it was evening. The sun had set. Which meant for the Jews that this was the next day. Right? We count day from midnight to midnight, don't we? Right? But the Jews counted it from sundown to sundown. And so from the Jewish perspective, the things that are about to happen, happen on the day that Jesus died. When it was evening... Verse 20, he reclined at table with the twelve. That's how they had their nice meals in that culture. Right? We like to sit around the table with chairs and, you know, they, no, 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 they lie down. Okay, legs pointing away from the middle table, head towards the center line. Right? There they are reclining. And once again we see Jesus in charge. He's not taken by surprise. He, he knows he's going to be betrayed. He's in control of the situation. Verse 21, As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
One of you are going to betray me. Now the disciples, of course, are very upset. Not only has he told them he's going to be killed, now he's saying he's going to be betrayed by one of them. Verse 22 says they were very sorrowful and began to say to each other, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Is it me? See, even the disciples by now, they realize that Jesus knows their thoughts and intentions even better than they know it themselves. They're saying, is it, is it me? Will I betray you sometime in the next 24 hours? It's going to be someone at the meal. Someone who shared in the big dish they all were eating from. For Jesus answered in verse 23, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He didn't say who it was. At least the big group. They might have tried to stop the betrayer. They might have threatened him or restrained him. It wasn't meant to happen. Jesus was going to be betrayed by his friend. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? It's pretty awful, isn't it? Ever had someone you trusted stab you in the back? Ever had a friend who turned out to be an enemy in disguise? Jesus knows that pain. He's betrayed by someone who, who ate with him, who shared his food. His ancestor David had the same similar experience. In Psalm 41, when he was writing about betrayal, he said this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. And that's what would happen to Jesus. It's hard enough being attacked by outsiders. The wounds of a friend are far more painful. But God is sovereign. Nothing is outside his control. Not, not even this. And the Son of Man goes, verse 24, Jesus says, As it is written of him, Prophecy must be fulfilled. God is still in control in spite of the terrible, terrible things that were about to happen. And he still used them for good. See, it was an evil thing, wasn't it? That these wicked priests and scribes and were out to kill Jesus. It's an evil thing that his friend would betray him. But through it all, God was in control. The Old Testament prophecies were being fulfilled one by one by one. Jesus was crucified. Terrible, terrible thing. And yet through that we have forgiveness and eternal life. God is in control and brings good out of evil. In fact, He works all things for the good of those who love Him. To make us like Christ. He takes terrible evil and turns it for good. And my friend, he can take that terrible evil that some of you are facing in your own lives and turn it for good. Don't have to work out how, that's, that's his job. May not be able to see it, but he can and he does. Our great God is in control. Prophecies must be fulfilled. God is working his purposes out. Yet at the same time, human beings are responsible for our actions. The fact that God is in control does not diminish Judas's responsibility one iota. And because God is just, the betrayer would face his wrath. 
Verse 24 again. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. You see, the fact that God is in control does not diminish human responsibility. We are still responsible for our actions. God is sovereign. We are responsible. We can only see both of those things one at a time. We can't imagine how those fit together. But both of those truths are taught in the Bible. God is in control. It's all prophesied. The betrayer is responsible for his actions. He has a moral responsibility. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 24, It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? And I'm sorry to have to remind us, but, but hell is real. Hell is awful. Hell is eternal. Human responsibility is a terrible thing if we do not have a saviour. For the one who rejects a saviour, there is nothing left to keep us from God's judgment. Remember how the disciples kept asking Jesus, Is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And Jesus hadn't told them, Well, there's at least one person that Jesus told. John's Gospel, he quietly whispers, tells, quietly shows John, but he also tells the betrayer himself. Verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He didn't call him Lord like the others did. He just called him Rabbi or Teacher. Maybe significant, maybe not. But Jesus answers him at the end of verse 25. You have said so. It's a Jewish way of saying yes. You said it. You're the one. Jesus knew it. He knew it all along. And now Judas knew that Jesus knew. But his heart is so hard that he went ahead with it anyway. Now it wasn't immediately obvious to the other disciples who the betrayer was, was it? He had kept his greedy heart a secret right up to now. You couldn't pick him. When Jesus said, one of you betray me, the disciples could admit, ah, it must be Judas. We know what's... No. They have to ask themselves, is it me? Is it I? And it's like that with us. We don't know who's going to desert the faith. We don't know for whom it would be better if they were not born. Friends, there are people who look like they are Christians who act like they are Christians, but they will not persevere to the end. And it's terribly sad when that happens. Judy and I have seen that with some of our own friends from university. People who were enthusiastic about Jesus, but now live as if he doesn't exist. If we go by the law of averages, it's not always right and I pray they're wrong, then there will be some people here today who look like believers but do not persevere to the end. People like Judas who eat and drink with Jesus and his people. But in five, ten, twenty years time you'll either be a Christian by name only, you know, for the sake of your IC 
Are you ought to be a Christian at all. Is it I, Lord? Please don't let it be you. For if that were you, it would be better if you hadn't been born. The next section in our passage is what is often known as the institution of the Lord's Supper. We'll skip that slide. You could also call it the, the transformation of the Passover. Now, the Lord's Supper, or the uh, Holy Communion, or the Eucharist, people call it different things, is actually an area where many people disagree. It's a pity, isn't it? Because, you know, for Christians it's a meal which is supposed to be uniting for us. Uh, but it is true that Christians are divided on the nature of the Lord's Supper. Now, some people will say that the bread and wine literally and physically change into the body and blood of Christ. Right? Looks like bread, tastes like bread, but actually it's human flesh. Looks like wine, tastes like wine, but actually it's human blood. Body and blood of Christ. That is called transubstantiation. Right? The substance changes on the inside. The accidents, the outside, looks the same, but actually on the inside it's changed. It's called transubstantiation, and it's taught by Roman Catholicism. Or there is consubstantiation, which says the bread is still bread, but the body of Christ is in there with it. So the actual body and blood of Christ are actually in there, alongside the elements of bread and wine, beside them, rather than instead of them. So it doesn't change, nothing changes, but something else goes in. Right. Close to that view is called sacramental union, which is a Lutheran view. Bread remains bread, but somehow or other, in a mysterious way, which no one understands, the body of Christ is present inside it, in, with, under, by. So it's still bread, but it's holy, because when you receive it, you're receiving the body of Christ. Because Jesus said, this is my body, you see. And then there's the reform view, now, to which Anglicanism belongs, or is meant to belong. Classical Anglicanism. Anglicanism that holds the prayer book and the 39 articles um, it's pretty firm here although there are many who hold positions in denomination who are not right? now in this view bread remains bread the wine remains wine they don't change but they're a pointer a symbol a sign that point to the death of Jesus and so we eat and drink in remembrance of him and we do so in faith trusting in him to save us if you look in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus used the metaphor of eating and drinking to refer to coming to him and believing in him. So to eat him, to drink him, is to come to him, to believe in him. Now, it's not really about the Lord's Supper there, but the metaphor still stands, and so we can metaphorically say every time we come to Jesus and believe in him, we are eating him and drinking him. We are feeding on him in our hearts and the Lord's Supper points us to the cross. That's a help for us because it points us to Jesus and his death. And we believe in him, we trust in him, and therefore we are feeding on him, metaphorically. So nothing changes in the bread and wine. We feed on Christ in our hearts by faith. Does those three views make sense? Sort of? Okay. Now, if it's a bit confusing, come and talk to me afterwards, all right? It is not enough to simply say, oh look, it's a mystery. We don't know the answers, we can accept all answers. Because actually, 
it does matter what we believe because it affects what we do. For example, if you're a Roman Catholic and you think the bread and wine is actually Jesus, then what you will do is worship the bread and wine. If you are right, then that's the perfectly appropriate thing to do. That's why Roman Catholics adore the bread and wine. But if you are wrong, then that's idolatry. And God hates idolatry. If you think the bread and wine deliver to you the body and blood of Christ in and of themselves, then you eat and drink to get the benefits of it in and of themselves. You will seek to feed on Christ with your teeth. But if you think they symbolize something else and the power is not in them in themselves, that's the death of Christ they point us to, then you will seek to feed on Christ in your heart. And so you'll concentrate not so much on the bread and wine, but, but on the death of Christ. I think a lot of our debates, though, stem from the fact we don't go all the way back to our original setting. We have all this baggage from church history and previous debates about it that we, we actually don't look and see like, how would, would the original disciples have understood it on the night that Jesus was betrayed? How does Jesus explain it to them? Let's go back. We put ourselves in the disciples' shoes or sandals as they lie around the table. Right? Look at the passage. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now, while they were eating... Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, there's a slight translation issue here. There is no it in the original Greek after the word blessing, and after the word broke. Can you see that? There's literally Jesus taking bread, blessed, broke, and gave it to his disciples. Now, there's nothing surprising here. That was standard Jewish practice. And what they ble- our translation doesn't do us very well here because it looks like he's blessing, he said, took bread and after blessing it, it looks like he's blessing the bread. Blessing the bread. Okay, thank you. Right. But what the Jews at the time were doing, that they did not bless the bread, they blessed the Lord. Right. Uh, it was a Jewish form of thanksgiving. Let me read to you the standard prayer at the Passover when it came to bread. Here's what it says. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to eat unleavened bread. See that? Okay. What does Jesus do? He takes the bread, he blesses, thanks to God, and he breaks it. Incidentally, Something to think about. Often before we eat, we often ask God to bless the food. Is it the food that should be blessing? Or should we be blessing God for the food? Think about that. Just a thought. Jesus took the bread. He blessed God. He thanked God for it. And then he broke it. But then instead of following the prescribed Passover ceremony, he changed it. He gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Now, you're a disciple. Do you be surprised by that? Sure. The standard words, which are loosely based on Deuteronomy 16.3, says, 
This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came from the land of Egypt. And what Jesus is saying, this is my body. He's changing the Passover to make it something from remembering what happened in Egypt to being all about himself. Now, Jesus says, this is my body. How do you understand it? What does he, how does he want his disciples to understand it? Remember, go back to the time. He is not in heaven as he is now. At the time, where is he? He's standing right in front of them. Or lying right in front of them. There in front of you, he says, Bread, this is my body. He's not saying, this is my body. See the difference? Right. Is he speaking literally? If you were there at the time, then of course you're not. He's not. No one in the room would think he is. No one in the room would imagine that the bread mysteriously turned into his body, which was actually still standing in front of them. In fact, theologically it's not possible, because if Jesus' pre-resurrection body was such that he could be standing there and be in the bread at the same time, then his body is not like ours. And if his body is not like ours, then he is not truly man like us. And if he is not truly man like us, then he cannot save us. Furthermore, when they ate the bread, they were used to saying, this is the bread, what was it? This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate when they came from the land of Egypt. Now, nobody thought that that was literally bread left over from 1,500 years ago. Right? Or the bread from 30 AD mysteriously turned back to 1,450 BC. No, no, Jesus didn't mean to be literal here. Any more than when he said, I am the vine, he means he's a plant. He's not expecting them to do it. So, what does this is my body mean? Well, can anyone tell me who this is? Look on that one. Who's that? Who's that? says this is my body if his body is here then it's obvious that he is saying this is a sign it's a sign that points to a reality it's not the reality itself the reality is standing right in front of him and so the bread that is taken that Jesus takes and he breaks is, point, is a sign that points to his body his body that will be broken for them on the cross and the same thing goes for the cup I go to verse 27. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Same principle. Now, let's think about this a little bit further, though. 
The phrase blood of the covenant actually goes back to Exodus 24 verse 8. The whole section is there on the screen. It's back when God made a covenant or treaty with his people Israel after he rescued them from out of Egypt. Moses was the middleman, the mediator of the covenant. And when the time came to formalize the covenant, Moses built an altar to God and got the young men of Israel to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice, peace offerings to God. And the blood of the offerings, he put half into basins, half he threw against the altar, read God's words to Israel, which he had written down earlier, and the Israelites said in verse 7, All the Lord has spoken, we will do, we will be obedient. And then Moses takes the blood and he throws it on the people and says, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's like the sealing of the old covenant. Mosaic covenant. Now, that was the old covenant. And the old co- but under the old covenant, Israel failed. Didn't obey God's laws as they were meant to. And so according to the terms of the old covenant, God punished them. Kicked them out of the land. And so years and years later, Jeremiah, when he's talking about this, also offers hope beyond the exile. He says, days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And God is about to bring in this covenant. Matthew 26, verse 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Jesus was going to bring in the new covenant that was promised by Jeremiah. Like Moses, he's the mediator of the covenant. The altar was the cross. That's where Jesus was offered up for us in sacrifice. And so the very next day, his blood would be shed. And the covenant would be sealed. And Jesus is prefiguring that with this, with this last Passover. And as the bread represented Jesus' body... So the, so the cup represents his blood which, which ratifies a new covenant. His blood that will be poured out in sacrificial death a few hours later for the forgiveness of sins. But death would not be the end. There will be more to come. For Jesus goes on in verse 29 to say, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, the Old Testament pictures the kingdom of God as, as a great banquet, a massive party. Here's a passage from Isaiah 25. God, God is going to make people for poor people a feast of rich food, of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow. Aged wine, well-refined. And you'll swallow up death forever and wipe every tear from people's eyes. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Isaiah is picturing the great banquet. Book of Revelation pictures it, calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
enormous celebration of the fulfillment of God's purposes. Where God wipes away every tear and there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things is done away. And Jesus died to make that possible. So even as he told his disciples to remember his death, even as he gave them this as a sign that pointed to his death, they would have do so in light of the fact that they would feast together one day. Post-resurrection meals give a foretaste of that. But brothers and sisters, the best is yet to be. So do you see that Jesus transformed the Passover? The Passover was a remembrance of God's great rescue of his people from Egypt. But that rescue was just a pointer, a shadow of the even bigger rescue that God would achieve the day that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He experienced God's judgment so that we might experience God's salvation. His death is what saves us from God's wrath. For the day will come that God will come in judgment upon the world. And on that day, the judgment that fell upon the Egyptians will seem like a slap in the wrist. For every human being will be called to account. Every human being will experience God's wrath. But Jesus died on that last Passover. That real Passover. So that God's people who trust in Him, who shelter under His blood, will be saved on the day of judgment and salvation. So brothers and sisters, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He has died in our place. And as we come to share together in the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, let's let's remember that. We are coming together as family, as his family, to partake in this little meal, Remembrance of the one who died for us and the rescue he wrought, the new covenant that he brought in, the salvation that he has promised. For whenever we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim our Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Passover and the Old Testament. The picture that paints, that points forward in the Lord Jesus, the true Passover lamb that was sacrificed in our place. Thank you for that Passover meal that your people remembered year after year of how you rescued them from Egypt. Thank you for that one great rescue that you've achieved for us in Christ. And thank you that we can remember together his death for us. In faith. Trusting him. And our Father, we, we pray that we will always hold that central. That it will keep our hearts and minds fixed on what Christ has done for us 
And therefore we would live for him and continue to live for him. Father, may we not be those who turn away. May we not be those who betray the Lord for anything else. May it not be us. Please keep us, we pray. Please keep us trusting in Jesus. What he has done for us on the cross. We pray that whenever we come to this Lord's Supper, that you remind us of Jesus, that your Spirit point us to him and help us to continue to love him and trust him. We pray in his name. Amen. One Peter one verse eighteen and nineteen says this about Christians that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Through Jesus' sacrifice we can be made right with God, and through Jesus' sacrifice we can have new life. So let's praise God in our next song. <laughs>